Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Welcome to Business is Unusual. I'm here today with Adam Baker. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. I'm excited to have you talk about what you're up to. And before we get into the nitty-gritty of your business, what's the last thing you did for fun? Well, just about a week and a half ago, we went, my wife and I went to a trade show out in California, outside of Sacramento. And we took a couple of days after the show and drove over to the coast and we drove down the Pacific Coast Highway down to Bodega Bay and then back to Sacramento. So we took a couple of days to walk on the beaches and explore these little towns along the coast. So that was uh, that was great fun. We're empty nesters. Or both of our kids are in college now, so we're kind of rediscovering each other and, and having fun doing little getaways, which we haven't been able to do in 18, 20 years. Mm-hmm. No, it's a very different, it's a very different experience. And I don't know, there's something about beach that is, it's always lovely to, and that California beaches are different. We were talking before the show started, we both have experience with the East Coast. And if you, if you think beach and you're used to California and then you go to an East Coast beach, you have a bit of a shock, I would say. So. Yeah, no, totally different, particularly Winter Beach. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're, you know, and and there's been a lot of rain and high wind and huge waves. And if you followed any of the weather on the West Coast, so this was a totally yeah. different kind of beach experience. But mm-hmm. we actually went to a place called Sea Glass Beach, which is famous for the amount of sea glass that washes up in these little coves. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we go to the beach every summer back on the East Coast on the Connecticut shore with my family, five generations worth of family going in the same spot. So we've been collecting sea glass as a family for generations. And then you go to the sea glass beach and like, you can't put your feet down without stepping on sea glass. So, so that was fun. That is awesome. Yeah. I always, I always thought it was kind of magical. I mean, I, I think most kids do find it. It looks like treasure. So Yeah. So would you, will you tell folks a little bit about your business? We have a brand called Soda Pup, and we make American-made pet supplies. We don't really think of them as pet supplies, but we we make dog toys, both rubber dog toys as well as nylon chew toys. We make lick mats. We make slow feeder dog bowls. And when I say that we don't really think of ourselves as a pet supply business, it's kind of central to what I'm trying to do with Soda Pup, which is a personal challenge to create something from nothing. I don't come from the pet industry. And so what I'm trying to do is create a consumer products brand that people can fall in love with. And so the question is, can you actually do that with a dog toy or a dog? But that was the opportunity I saw uh, when I started this business. So if we rewind a little bit, I was still working at Crocs when I started looking at the pet industry and I was running product management at Crocs. My team and I, we were the 
product strategist. We're the ones that decide what to make, which designs get approved, how much they cost, the merchandising strategy, all of that. So I'm a product strategist by training. Okay. But I got to Crocs in 2008. We're in the deepest part of the recession. And somewhere along the way, I read a story or heard a story about how the pet industry continued to grow throughout the recession. And so I thought that was really interesting. What is it about the pet industry that allows it to grow during tough economic times? And so I started just following the pet industry. And then four years later, I made the decision to leave Crocs and and I started uh, the first generation of this business, which was not Soda Pop, it was something else related. But the opportunity I saw was that particularly with toys and bowls and things like that, uh, the designs weren't very interesting, first of all. And I didn't see a consumer connection. So you have to understand my background is in, I worked at Nike, I worked at Under Armour, I worked at Crocs and companies like that. The consumer is at the center of your universe and you're building things with a person in mind. Who, who is this person? What does she want? How do we give her what she wants? And I just didn't see that in the pet industry. It's like there was no, there were functional considerations. What do I do to make this toy more durable? Or how can mm-hmm. I, like, what device can I create to throw a tennis ball further? Things like that, all functional solutions. But they weren't beautiful solutions. They weren't solutions mm-hmm. that I would speak to a consumer. Like, a, and I got to have it. Oh my God, I got to have it kind of moment at retail. Right. And the thing about the pet industry is the backbone of that business is actually food and treats and cat litter and other consumable products. And so categories like dog toys and and dog bowls, those are accessory businesses to most pet retailers. And so I was just looking at it thinking, well, if it's always the same and it's not very interesting, what's going to compel a person to buy it? Or it's easy to make the decision, I'll get it next time because I know it'll be here. And so the kind of the big idea was, can I, basically, can I run the Nike playbook in a pet company? Mm-hmm. Can I create products that speak to people? Can I create a fashion cadence where there's a steady cadence of new things? Can I sunset other things so that there's a limited life cycle of certain products? Can I crowdsource from my social media following what people want. And mm-hmm. so we're applying all of these types of thinking to create a whole new type of company. And it's been working. So we're pretty happy. I'll post your Instagram feed because I think folks will want to check that out. And the, the artistry that people have engaged in with your some of your different product, products is it's a high level. But I, you know, I look at it. I would never submit a picture to your Instagram. Let me put it that way. Honestly, either would I. That's our dirty little secret is that we're good at making, you know, the stuff you see over my shoulder here. Yeah. We're we're, we're good at coming up with those things. But boy, I I don't know if I have it in me to do the, the beautiful, elaborate types of enrichment that people are doing for their dogs. It's mind blowing. That's been a really fun kind of 
360 degree kind of interaction with customers because mm-hmm. when we did our first LickMat, which was only in 2020, we did that coming out of the pandemic because I was at home with three dogs needed to keep them busy when I was on conference calls and things like that. So and I had a friend suggest that we look at that category, which I, honestly, I wasn't that familiar with. And the first LickMat, we tested a lot of competing products to see what we liked and didn't like. And so when we created the first design, we were trying to solve a lot of the shortcomings that we saw in other products. We wanted something that was more durable, something that would take a dog longer to lick, something that was more beautiful or fun or whimsical or in some way created an emotional response. So it didn't look like it was designed by an engineer. And so the first design we did was a, was our jigsaw design. And it looks like a jigsaw puzzle with one piece missing, of course, because mm-hmm. there's always one piece missing when you finish the jigsaw puzzle. So that was yes. kind of the little end joke. But the whole idea that we bring is that it's not enough just to be functional. A product can be both functional and beautiful. And this actually goes back in my career. When I was at Nike, and I was there a long time ago, it was like 20 years ago, 1993 to 2003. And they were just getting into the women's apparel business. And even the footwear was kind of a shrink it and pink it mentality. They weren't using a women's last for footwear. and, And kind of the same philosophy was being used on the apparel side of the business. And the women's apparel division was being run by men. And they were afraid that if things became too feminine, too frilly, too beautiful, that Nike wouldn't be viewed as a performance brand. And then Lululemon came along and started doing all of those things. And it had a pretty dramatic impact on the Nike business because women were voting for things that were more beautiful and, by the way, functional. That was a really important lesson for me, that it's not enough just to be functional. You have to be attractive to, they're not mutually exclusive goals. And so we've applied that starting with the jigsaw puzzle. But what was interesting about it was then we saw how people were using the jigsaw puzzle. And so some people were mixing like kefir or plain yogurt with coloring. There are different natural food colorings that you can add to make things blue and green and pink. And so they're getting like pipettes and, and filling the jigsaw puzzle with all these different colors. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. I did not mm-hmm. anticipate that at all. Right. Um, but because of the way we designed the mats, which were unlike anybody, any competing mats, it allowed people to fill enclosed shapes with a different food or a different color. Mm-hmm. So it became yeah. co- color by numbers. Whereas... For example, one of our competitors, they make a lick mat and it's super functional. I just don't think it's very beautiful. And it's just a bunch of little nubs. So when the dog licks, massaging his toe with these nubs. So it's perfectly functional, but it doesn't allow a person to fill different sections with different foods. And so we gained, just from watching our Instagram feed and what people were posting with our product, it became a really important feedback loop for us because we saw what people were doing And then we leaned into that idea and we started designing other things that would allow people to color. And then we applied that logic to slow feeder bowls and and to other 
products that we make. And so, you know, more so than any other brand, people engaged with our product in unanticipated ways that we then leaned into to build on that. And mm -hmm. what that's enabled is for our social media to kind of explode because yeah. we're enabling people to do things that they can't do with other brands' products. Mm -hmm. If that that's that's why I say it's a really great 360 because we're we're inspired to make beautiful products and then we see how people engage with the beautiful product and then we learn from that and it and then that informs the next things that we'll do. And so we continue to refine our point of view over time as we learn from our customers. And so it's kind of taken a life of its own. And from a marketing standpoint, it's just a, it's a marketer's dream to have this type of consumer engagement. And then going back my earlier comment where I said, my goal was to see if we could build a pet supply brand that people could fall in love with. Yeah. And most research shows that the vast majority of consumers out there can't name dog toy brand. Right. They can't name. So there, there's really no loyalty because mm -hmm. they can't even name the products that they buy. But what we're doing is people have come to anticipate and expect from us a certain type of product. And they ask for us by name and they search for us by name on Google. And, and so largely this... I started this as kind of an intellectual or an academic exercise. I'd been fortunate in my career. I was able to retire early, but I had young kids at home and I wanted them to know what an honest day's work looked like. And, and so I thought, well, okay, can I make, can I create magic? Can I create something from nothing? And by applying all the principles I've learned in my previous career, can I apply those to the pet industry to do something new in order to differentiate us from all the usual suspects in the pet industry? Mm -hmm. All kind of the brands that have been around for 30, 40 years. And it's a, the pet industry has really accelerated because during the pandemic, everybody got a dog. The business really boomed during the pandemic and it attracted a lot of private equity money. A lot of investment, a lot of consolidation, hyper, hyper competitive market. But I would venture to say that, you know, most products, most brands don't have the same product development point of view that we do. Okay. It's allowed us to flourish. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. you, well, I'm, I, one of the trends that I'm seeing in a general sense is because things have become to a certain extent, so impersonal. The, those places where people feel a sense of like engagement and connection, and you actually are having a relationship with your consumer, that personalization, I think, is very much desired. There's certainly a large and, and growing digital community of, of dog lovers. And specifically, we're, we've leaned into a narrow segment. We focus a lot on, on enrichment products. So mm -hmm. an enrichment product is a product that makes your dog work for their food so that they're engaging mentally as well as physically. Like one of the worst things you can do for your dog is feed them in a regular bowl. They don't have to work for it. They eat too fast. They tend to overeat if you let them. And so by using enrichment products like a slow feeder bowl, like a lick mat, then you're forcing your dog to slow down, first of all, which is better for gut health. And then you're forcing them to use their brains to get the food, which 
overall, it gives them more happiness because they're not bored. The other interesting thing about social media is that we primarily post user-generated content. I kind of view Instagram less as a kind of a slick corporate marketing tool with with slick corporately generated types of information and more as a celebratory tool. We want to highlight people around the world that are doing amazing things with our products. And if we can drive traffic to them, well, then that's great. Everybody benefits. We're showing the world what other people are doing with our products. We're celebrating them. We're driving traffic back to them. That way, we're trying to build our own community by not being corporate. I mean, we're not corporate. We're a tiny organization. We have like 10 people. Yeah. Most of them are aware of filling orders. That's awesome. Well, so let me just rewind. We've had a fair amount of momentum. And so there are a lot of people that want to give us money, people that want to buy a piece of the business and give us cash to fuel our growth. And, um, and that's one way to go. And, and many businesses do that, but you know, we've chosen not to do that. I would much rather grow at an organic rate that is sustainable, that allows us to keep control. So yeah. we're not back in, in the corporate environment where I'm reporting to the people that have given me their money and it changes the whole vibe, I think, mm-hmm. when you do that. And so, you know, and ultimately it's not about the money. I mean, I, I hope that we can make money at it and we've been profitable. For me, like I said, this started as an academic exercise. It right. Was, can I do it? And so the real gratification for me is figuring out how to do it. And we've made some wrong turns and unfortunately thrown away some money on projects that didn't work out. And But we're also super aggressive. We tried a lot of things. And right. the nice thing about being a small, privately owned business is that we can take risks that, you know, larger, slower moving organizations with different work ownership structures, other companies just can't be as aggressive or they can't be as risky. It's a liberating experience compared to my corporate days. Yeah. You've talked about this a little bit, but what, what would you say success is to you in this business? Is it sort of creating that engaged community or is it more amorphous than that? Do you have a sense of what you would define success for yourself as in this endeavor? Money is kind of, it's the result, but it's not necessarily, how to say this, it's not the goal in and of itself, right? The goal is to do the right things to get people to love your brand and your product. So you know, success for me is having, having people that not just love our products, but they love our brand. So it's not just that they like this widget or that widget. They love what we stand for. And the, right. they like the totality of what we're doing. And that's really what, that's the essence of branding, right? When, mm-hmm. when the brand itself becomes bigger than any one of its products. And, and that's when you start to build loyalty. And that's when people, they stop Googling for dog toys and they start Googling for soda pop and they know that they'll find dog toys. And so, and we're watching that happen. Success is having a brand that people love and feel allegiance to. That's success. And by the way, if you're successful at that, 
then, you know, the money will come. The trick is figuring out how to, how to do all that while staying profitable. Yeah. Because if you're not going to take anybody's money, then, and you want to launch a bunch of new products, all of which are expensive to develop, particularly in the U.S., which all of our products are made in the USA, then it's a real fine balancing act. The good news is that I don't have really a board to answer to. Yeah. So, so it's, for me, it's not about maximizing profit right now. What it's about now is, is being profitable and reinvesting everything into new products to continue to drive brand loyalty. So, so which you, by the way, I mentioned the Nike playbook. I mean, that is the Nike playbook, right? You, okay. they make super cool products. They put it on athletes and then they create, it's a, it's a classic from a marketing perspective. It's a classic pull strategy rather than pushing their products into distribution through discounting. What they're doing is they're creating cool products, putting it on athletes, which creates demand directly with consumers. And then retailers are asking for your product because consumers want it. And mm. then, so you're pulling it through the channel, not pushing it through the channel. And that's what we do. I mean, I don't do any Facebook advertising. I don't do Instagram advertising. You'll never see discounting on our website. We don't discount. And we're, we make a beautiful product. It's well-made. It's made in the USA. It's FDA compliant. It's a great product and it's worth it at full price. And then we use all of these followers on social media to generate brand awareness. And then we got a lot of people going into retailers saying, hey, can I get soda pop here? And so right. I don't even have a sales force, which is really the crazy thing. No sales mm -hmm. force. And so we're, and we probably sell, I mean, we sell to thousands of retailers in 45 countries, 48 countries. Wow. So yeah, and we do have distributors and distributors have sales forces, but that's not how we originally grew the business. Once you hit critical mass, then the distributors start showing an interest in you. And so, right. so, but you, you've got to hit critical mass before anyone's going to be interested in you from a distribution yeah. perspective. So. so two questions. One, what, what's critical mass in a, is there like a formula? Or is it just enough people asking? And two, can you talk yeah, a little more, bit more about the American-made process? Yeah. So a critical mass is more a feeling than it is a formula. And, you, and the feeling feels like distributors are calling you saying, hey, we want to distribute your product. So <laughs> like, you've, okay. become, you've become, at some point, you start getting on people's radar because everybody's talking about you or you keep showing up in the trade magazines. One of the benefits, I'm kind of bouncing around here a little bit, but mm -hmm. I view neat product development, which is expensive because we do all injection molded products, right? So everything involves cutting a steel mold, which is very expensive. So there's a big risk to launch a new product. And most of our competitors don't introduce that much new product. So it's kind of the same old, same old. What we do is we introduce a lot of new product, but for me, that is a marketing story because when you introduce new products, then you can send out a press release to the trade and then they're going to put a blurb in the next edition of their magazine. And then if you do it often enough, they're going to interview you and do a feature story on Soda Pop. And then you get invited on podcasts and 
when you're creating energy around your brand, which we do through product, new product, then, then everyone wants to come and talk to you about it. And so it is marketing. So rather than pay five grand for a full page ad and pet business magazine or whatever, I'll spend that money on a new tool and make some new products. And then I'll do a press release. And then pet business magazine is going to include me in their magazine anyway. Right. And so, so it, again, it's very much a, a pull strategy versus a traditional push strategy. Okay. What was the other part of your question? American made. Oh, American made. Yeah. So in the apparel and footwear industry, athletic industry that I came from, everything is made overseas. And that's because everything is sewn which is very labor intensive. It's armies of people sitting at sewing machines, sewing the, the vamps on your shoes or sewing your running jacket. And so it can be very difficult to produce those types of products in the United States because of labor costs. And of course, there are other costs to producing in Asia. You have to ship everything here. So there's longer lead times. You yeah. have to place orders earlier, you're taking more inventory risk, you've got to clear customs, you've got to pay duties. But those things don't offset the cost savings in labor. But somewhere along the way, the model appears in the pet industry seems to be that everything needs to be made overseas, except for food and treats. Uh, and that's because imported foods and treats led to some deaths in the pet industry. So I started at that and saying, well, I don't understand why an injection molded rubber toy needs to be made in Asia. Once you have the mold, it's a somewhat automated process. Mm -hmm. So you're amortizing that labor across many, many parts because the machine is, is running in a more automated way. So, so when I started this business, I, I started by figuring out what it is the consumers wanted, right? So the whole model was to say, what if we actually give customers what they want? and ask them and find out. And so what people want are products that are safe. They want American-made and they want high quality, particularly in the category of cheat toys where we started our business. These are things that, Pete, that dogs put in their mouth and pet parents want to be sure that it's safe to be in their mouth. Yeah. And so we use exclusively FDA-compliant materials. Most of our products are overbuilt compared to competing products. So they're more durable, less choking hazard, less opportunity yeah. for destruction, things like that. And honestly, I just think it's the right thing to do. During the pandemic, we had no disruption to our business. We were still able to get product. And so it just kind of reaffirmed the decisions I made early on in the business because that's American made is a pillar of our brand. It's not just something we do when we can. It's the only thing we do. There's other, there's other brands out there that I won't name that they really promote that this product is made in the USA or whatever, but they're not doing it across the board. In fact, most of their products are not made in the USA. So to boast about a handful of SKUs being made in the USA when 95% of your stuff is made in Asia, is just, it's disingenuous. For us, everything's made in the US. So, because I think it's the right thing to do and, and we have figured out a way to do it. I think that's great. And so I wanted to ask more about it because it is unusual and there's a lot we could get into around it. And we, I think we got too, too overbalanced. I think 
I think a little bit of back and forth is great, but it seemed like everything was exported to the point, reimported, excuse me, to the point where we didn't have a manufacturing base, really. We have a lot of empty manufacturing production facilities in the Midwest, but right. I think they're finally realizing that we need to do something about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a difficult conversation because I actually believe that we live in a global economy and the more mm -hmm. that we are tied to other nations economically, the less likely there's going to be conflict because we rely on each other. Yeah. So I certainly understand the arguments for sourcing in other countries and I don't disagree with it. And there may come a time when my European business is, is so big that it makes sense to produce some of those things on the European continent mm -hmm. because transportation costs are so huge. So there are strong arguments for a global economy. On the other hand, we, as you said, we became very unbalanced. And like I said, it felt to me in the pet industry that the default position was we need to make it overseas. And I just don't yeah. agree with that, with that underlying premise. I think some things need to be made overseas. Or I believe that some things are very difficult to make in the U.S. A plush toy, for example, a little mm -hmm. stuffed animal of your dog. That's hard to make in the U.S. At, and being competitive with mm -hmm. manufacturing. That's a tough yeah. category. But so the things that we make, I mean, it's not a surprise because American manufacturing is a pillar for us, like a non-negotiable. And therefore, almost everything we offer is an injection molded product. We're only producing the things that we can actually make in the U.S. So I've made a decision not to extend into categories that I can't produce in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if I produce plush toys, I think I could do a great plush toy business. We could make really fun designs. I think we could be really successful at that, except that I don't want to produce overseas. So, right. so I've, I've chosen not to get into that category. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good lesson too. I feel like that honing in on, on what like your values or your commitments are in terms of your, your business, it also, I think, contributes the ability to create that brand that you're talking about because there's a sense of personality to it. And once again, something for people to connect to. And it also, there's so many things. You have to find ways to limit and focus what you're up to. Well, and the other thing is that, I mean, there's a difference pre between producing a thing versus producing a brand. Essentially, a brand is a personality. A brand is... It's not a, it's not a, it's not an object. It's, it's a set of values that you stand for. And so when you're building a brand, you, you have to understand who it is you want to be, who, what you want your brand to be. And then, and then that, it becomes your North star. It starts to inform all the other decisions that you make. And again, I, I think that at least in the beginning is changing in the pet industry, but in the beginning, I didn't think there was a lot of that type of thinking. Yeah. As I said, there's a lot, there's big influx of people coming from other industries, coming from branded consumer products backgrounds. And so, so that's definitely changing. A brand is a set of values. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to find what those are. And those values not only impact, you know, the voice that you speak with or the products that you make, but, you know, it extends to how you treat your employees and a lot of other things. What 
charitable organizations do you contribute to and things like that. First career was actually as an officer in the Coast Guard. And so I think having served maybe informs my decision to be made in the USA brand as well. And we support, we support two types of charities. We support shelters. And our support comes in the form of product donations because we don't really have cash to give away, but, but product donations. And then the other organization that we, or the type of organization that we give to is service dogs, whether they be service dogs for PTSD or people, dogs that can sense oncoming epileptic mm-hmm. seizure to okay. military working dogs serving overseas. We give a lot of toys through an organization called Military Working Dog Team Support Association, MWDTSA. Um, we get a lot of requests from dock diving people and Frisbee events and things like that. And we don't give, I mean, those are all worthwhile causes, but we don't give to those types of events. Yeah. Once again, it's that balance that you have to find. So would you be willing to tell some advice that you've received that's influenced how you do your work? Advice that I've received? Well, you know, there are some kind of cliche things, which maybe they're cliches, but they're very true. Like, do what you love. I'll tell you that my experience has been, I've had a wonderful career. I worked for some amazing organizations. I had incredible teammates and I have a lot of gratitude for the opportunities that I've had, but I've never had more fun than I'm having right now. And some of that is about when you work in a large company, as I worked in large organizations, your scope of responsibility is, it's kind of a slice, right? You stay in your lane and then where one function bumps up against another function, there's a lot of communication and teamwork and collaboration, but everything's a negotiation, right? And so you get to do this sliver of the business and you get really good at that. But when you have your own business, it forces you to be a generalist and it gives you the opportunity, or it, that's one way to look at it, it gives you the opportunity or it forces you <laughs> to do other things that you have less experience in and less expertise. You have to know what your own capabilities are, what your limitations are, and find people that can can fill in the blanks for you. And yeah. I've been fortunate to, 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 honestly, in some cases, just stumble into people that have made a massive impact on our business. I've really enjoyed the broader scope of this work. The fact that I get to be involved in many, many different aspects of the business, all aspects of the business, honestly. And, and it's true. I mean, I procrastinate on the things that I don't want to do. And I spend a lot of time on the things that I love and I have to force Mm -hmm. myself not to do that at times, but uh, I was fortunate to, to have this other career beforehand. So I at least understand what I'm supposed to be spending my time on, make the whole business go. But I will also say that it's not easy. I mean, I've been at this 10 years. And I wouldn't say that I have worked any less. And I worked a lot in my corporate life. When you're in an executive role or a leadership role, there really are no boundaries. Yeah. For me, you work in a global business, you're doing conference calls at 11 o'clock at night. You're doing leadership meetings at five in the morning. You're putting out fires whenever they're coming up. There's no boundaries when you're in those types of roles in a big organization. But you kind of know that. When you, when you take the job. And that is certainly true in this business as well. 
but the, it just feels so different. Yeah. I don't feel put I don't feel put out by it when it's my business. When you work for someone else, you can tend to kind of resent all the extracurricular stuff involved in the job. But when it's your own business, it just never feels that way. I mean, I honestly, and this isn't exaggerating, I don't think I remember a day when I woke up with a pit in my stomach about mm -hmm. working on this bit. And there were a lot of days when I had that in other jobs. But here, it, it's just totally different. But, you know, I work a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do too. And I, I like to work. I feel like I want that for people. I want people to have the ability to do things that they feel like they're learning or growing or that they're competent at or that they believe in and feel that sense of challenge and fulfillment that I think a lot of people do want based on, you know, purely anecdotal experiential stuff. Like I don't have, I've done any studies or anything like that, but a lot of people really get fulfilled by that, by finding also where their zone of effectiveness is. And they, you see that with kids, but also with adults where they suddenly realize like, oh, I have this ability. I can, I can contribute. And they get very excited about it. And I, I want that for everybody, that feeling of, yeah, I work a lot and I kind of like it, like not, not too much, not the grind, the workaholism, but that feeling of fulfillment and engagement. I think, I think there's something there that, that, what, that we're missing. No. People grind. And I think there's a difference between grinding and being genuinely fulfilled, even by the things you don't like. You're like, ah, oh, it's not my favorite thing, but I love my job. Or I love my business. So I'll, I'll do this thing. Maybe I think that everybody has a superpower, but for yeah. many people, a long time for them to um, to identify what it is or even to believe that they have it. And yeah. it's one of the things I, I worked on with my kids. And just like all of us, we all have strengths and weaknesses. And I tried to point out to them at certain points in their life, I was like, okay, that right there, like that is like you in a nutshell, that this, this is your, this is kind of your superpower, the way that I see it. You're really good at this. You really love it. Like that's something just to tuck in the back of your brain to know that you have a superpower. And, and in terms of this work that I do now, it's so fulfilling because it scratches a lot of itches for me, right? Because on the one hand, I do all the product design. I have somebody that does the CAD work, but I do all the conceptualization and and so, so I have this amazing creative outlet. I get to make things, which is awesome. And yeah. then I'm also the touch point with all media. So I'm the marketing guy. So I get to tell the stories about the mm -hmm. things that are in my head, the things that we've produced. And for lack of a better term, I guess I run sales. So I'm on point with whether it be with my distributors or, or retailers that we sell directly to. And I get to learn about their businesses and hopefully help them grow their businesses. I've got a staff of people that we create jobs for. It's fun to have that community there. And then there's the online community. And so a lot of boxes for me to be able to, to do all those things. And so, I mean, I'm afraid of retiring because I feel like, I'd be giving up so much connection, you know, yeah. so much stimulation. 
you gotta keep, you gotta keep using your brain. I think or you've got to keep those muscles moving. So, but finding something like this where you can, I think as the business allows, as we continue to grow, the the key will be being able to hire more people to just take more off my plates. So it's always there. So I don't have I don't have a staff yet where I can just hand this all off and say see you in a week. Yeah. No, I think being able to take a break is important. And for folks that are listening, I know obviously I have the links for the Instagram. What's the best? Is that the best way for them to, if they want to follow you, do you have an email list or? Yeah. So, well, so our Instagram is at Soda Pup Dog Toys. Our TikTok, which is newer for us, I'm learning, keeps you young because you got to keep up with all the new social media mm-hmm. platforms. So we've got an at Soda Pup Dog Toys account on TikTok as well. Our email is info at sodapup.com. It's S-O-D-A-P-U-P. We can sodapup. And then our website is sodapup.com. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your business today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been fun. Thanks for uh, giving me the time.